if you had all the money in the world, what would you do? Which is an interesting, empowering question. The only thing is, it assumes that the only way to achieve that is to have all the money in the world. So it often is a barrier to actually doing your dream. I found there's a complimentary question. If you had no money in the world, which I actually experienced, what would you do? Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this episode of The Daily Helping. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and today's guest is phenomenal. Mike Michalowicz is the author of Profit First Surge, The Pumpkin Plan, and his newest released Clockwork, which we're going to talk about today. By his 35th birthday, Mike had founded and sold two companies, one to private equity and another to Fortune 500. Today, he's running his third multi-million dollar venture, Profit First Professionals. Mike is a former small business columnist for the Wall Street Journal and the former business makeover specialist on MSNBC. Over the years, Mike has traveled the globe speaking with thousands of entrepreneurs and is here today to share the best of what he has learned. Mike, welcome to the show. Dr. Richard, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. It is an honor having you on. And there's so many things we could talk about. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about your background and and what got you on the path that you are today. Well, it it all started off with the Terminator 2 movie, right? Yes. We we have an offline conversation about that. Uh, It actually did start with a movie. I I was watching Wall Street. I don't know if you remember this movie. Yep. Gordon Gecko, And I remember aspiring to be Gordon Gecko. Uh, I thought he was actually the hero of the movie in, in some convoluted way. He was the guy who said, greed is good. And I wanted to be that guy. It put me in a path of studying finance and so forth, and ultimately entrepreneurship. And I grew some companies and sold them. The dark reality behind that, though, is I never understood anything beyond just trying to make money. And uh, at one point, I lost all of it. I became an angel investor. It's horrible at what I did. I had no clue what I was doing, and I blew tons of money. Uh, and, and I went into depression after that. It became this kind of new awakening for me that maybe greed isn't so good. Maybe I don't know much about entrepreneurship. Maybe I got to reinvest this, reinvestigate this. And uh, I decided to become an author. There's an interesting question I discovered too is uh, there's a saying, and I'm sure you've heard of it, Dr. Richard, is that if you had all the money in the world, what would you do? which is an interesting, empowering question. The only thing is, it assumes that the only way to achieve that is to have all the money in the world. So it often is a barrier to actually doing your dream. I found there's a complimentary question. If you had no money in the world, which I actually experienced, what would you do? So when I lost all my wealth uh, as an angel investor, now I call myself the angel of death. <laughs> once, mm-hmm. I, once I lost all that money, I ask that question. Now that I have nothing, what do I want to do? And when the answer aligns to both those questions, financial freedom, what would you do? And no money, what would be your vocation? If the answer is the same, that is it. And I, I declared, I, I commit to being an author. I want to study 
entrepreneurship. And actually, this go around, I really want to understand it. I want to correct my own mistakes, but I want to discover the common threads of what make entrepreneurs successful and, and share it, learn it for myself and share it with the world. That's why I became an author. And as you started doing that, talk to us about some of the things that shifted your perception and the well, Gordon Gecko philosophy of life. Yeah. So a couple of philosophy things. My very first book was called The Toilet Paper Entrepreneur. And I had heard all these sayings like, it takes money to make money. You, you got to have uh, knowledge to go into a market. Who's your net, what's your network like? And started to, to see that the most successful on, entrepreneurs that I was studying actually didn't have money to get started. It was actually the lack of money that forced them to become very innovative about their industry, challenge the industry norms, and, and become the leader of the industry. I found it was the lack of contacts and a network that when they started their business, they had to actually sell to strangers. And strangers are the best people to sell to because they speak the truth through their actions. Not their words, but their wallets, right? It's their spend. When, when businesses started up and they had a network, people felt an affinity toward that person who were buying their stuff, not because they wanted their stuff, but they wanted to do good for that person and actually gave them a misdirection on what was really valuable and what they were doing. Another lesson was that profit doesn't come last. You know, we've been told, I wrote about this in Profit First, that profit's the bottom line or the year end. And I found that is the biggest mistake that we're thinking that profit is an event or an eventuality when profit needs to be a habit, needs to be baked into every transaction. That profit actually comes first. And I've discovered many other things too throughout my books, but those are some of the things that come immediately to mind that were mind bending for me. And it's interesting because a lot of people might hear profit first and think, well, this guy's still Gordon Gecko. But that's, not, right. <laughs> but that's not the case at all. And, and so what's increasingly prevalent is this conversation about having you know, profit centered around purpose. So talk to us about how profit first or putting profit first isn't a distinction or isn't dichotomous to the efforts that you're engaging in in an entrepreneurial space as helping others and making a difference. Yeah. And I get at first blush, people say, this is a total dichotomy. It's either purpose or profit. And we see it in the world too. We see people that really serve a big purpose are major self-sacrificers. But I want to argue that they're actually very complementary. Profitability translates to sustainability. I mean, think about a customer. Can you imagine going to a customer saying, I am dying here. I can't even put food on my own table. I don't know where I'm going to be tomorrow. I'm going to lose what I possess. So I may be underwater. Do you want to do business with me? That desperation is very dangerous for customers because they may give you money and you may run away with it. Or they may give you money and you may not be able to deliver because you can't sustain. So our customers actually want our profitability. Now, they'll never say that. Customers will never say, can I give you more money because I want you to be super stupid rich? Our customers will say, I want you to be sustainable. I want confidence you'll be around for as long as I need you. I want you the confidence you won't be distracted with other things. Profitability translates to sustainability. Profitability translates to confidence so we aren't stressed out. So when I said profit first, what I'm saying is if you don't take care of that oxygen for your business, you will be suffocating and you can't deliver on your purpose. So that's what I mean by profit first. You have to take care of your sustainability so you can do good things for your community and for our world. No, that makes perfect sense. And I knew you weren't Gordon Gecko anymore, but I wanted to put it out there because at a glance, you know, it sounds like that. But when you, when you 
dive into it as you did. That makes perfect, complete sense. There's a saying out there, they say, don't judge a book by its title. The reason they say that is because people judge books by its title, by its cover, right? So the, the title selection, you have to be kind of salacious so to get people's attention. The interesting thing about Private First is the whole formula is there too, right? So I wanted something that people go, whoa, what's this guy talking about? And then I wanted them to see in the title, oh, actually that is the process. If I take my profit first and reserve it first, it's the pay yourself first principle, then I will have sustainability to do good things. I love it. I love it. And so you have found this path. You wrote a number of books and talk to us. I, I, I certainly want to spend quite a bit of time talking about your newest book, Clockwork. But talk to us about what was the impetus for writing Clockwork? So, well, thank you I, for asking. What I believe now, and I haven't written about this yet, but I surely will, is that I, I studied Maslow's hierarchy of needs, human needs, and there's a foundational need of like literally oxygen. And we can start moving up toward like food and water, shelter, self-actualization is the highest level. And I was looking at that and I had this awareness. I said, oh my gosh, there's kind of a hierarchy of needs for businesses too. Foundationally, every business needs sales because without sales, there's no source of inbound income, uh, you know, inbound cash flow. And that is the oxygen of a business. The next level up, which I consider the nutrition, is profitability. It's the food and water that we need to consume as a business. Sadly, many businesses are so focused on sales the business is actually starving to death. It's wilting away and they're gasping for more oxygen when they should be taking in the nutrition of profit. I believe once a business has sustainable sales, has permanent profitability, there's a next level up, which is capturing time. Right now, there's, there's a lot of talk about the grind and the hustle that we need to bring to business. But I believe it's being misinterpreted. I think entrepreneurs think the growth and success of a business is solely contingent upon their ability to work harder and longer. And that is not the truth. It's actually on our ability to work smarter. I believe a successful business is a business that can run itself and that we as owners should aspire to be free of our business so we have the elective to do what we want, when we want in our personal lives, but also in our business lives to insert ourselves in the business in the way that we get joy out of it. So clockwork is specifically about this next level up the Maslowian hierarchy of needs for entrepreneurship in capturing time and positioning the business to operate independently of us so that we can actually be a big contributor in the way we want to, to our business and not for our business to hinge its success entirely off of our own sweat and effort. And is Clockwork a book that you would say is for established businesses, large businesses, somebody who's thinking about a business? What's really the sweet spot? Yeah, it's really targeting smaller businesses. I'd say if you have you know 25 employees or less, this is for you. If you're a solopreneur, it is for you. You know, the, the time you're in business, actually, the earlier you start it, the more successful you'll be because you don't have established rules and habits. But established businesses, no question, need to make this transition. Maybe more difficult for them. If a business is 30, 40, 50 employees, this book probably won't serve them. And, and I would skip out on it, quite frankly. But a smaller business, I would clockwork is designed for them. The big takeaway though or I should say additionally, was that micro entrepreneurs, three employees, one employee, just themselves, can start clockworking, if I may use that term, clockworking their business. They can start positioning their business to run independently of them because there's so many resources out there. Our success in a business is not contingent upon making that first full-time hire. There, there is countless off-the-shelf software packages that can be implemented. There are 
virtual help and there's part-time work. All these things, even our contractors and other vendors can be leveraged in a way, in a complementary fashion, that if we orchestrate that community to, to establish a common goal, that we can even as a solopreneur extract ourselves from the business. Makes sense. And, and I want to take a dive into clockwork because I know you have these seven principles built into it that can help one's business run like clockwork. And the first one is called analyze the 4D mix. And yeah. The four Ds are doing, deciding, delegating, and designing. So take us through that. Yeah. So that is the stages of how or the activities that a business will do. And as a smaller business, often what the entrepreneur will take on. And we, as an entrepreneur, I suggest in the book, need to throttle up to the designing phase. Sadly, most of us think it's a switch. We think one day, if I grow the business big enough that the right customer or the right investor or something will happen where I don't need to work in the business, and that day forward, I'll be working on the business. And the reality is it's not a switch. It is a throttle. We need to surgically extract ourselves from the business and transition to this design mode where we are, you know, it's a choreographed dance of our resources that we're managing. The doing phase is where we do the work. The deciding phase is where we bring on resources and talent, but we as the owner are making all the decisions for them. We say, oh, go do this. And they come back a second later with a question like, oh, okay, in this case, now do that. We are not truly delegating work. What we're doing is task rabbiting. You would tell me, Mike, do this, and I come back to you with questions. It often stagnates the growth of business because it's so frustrating. I can only make decisions for so many people before I can't do any more work. Some entrepreneurs get so frustrated with this, they say, well, you know what? Those people are idiots. Uh, I'm going to do all the work myself because I'm better at this. I'm firing those two or three employees and going back to doing it myself and stay stuck in this loop of either doing the work themselves or deciding for others. To break through that, we need to go to the next level, which is delegation. The true definition of delegation is the assignment of outcomes, not tasks, outcomes. Here's the expectation I have for you to achieve. You know, I, we need to have our clients to pay us on time. Our best practice is an invoicing process that I suggest you follow. But as you come across anomalies, as things don't work out, don't ask me about it. I hired you for what's on your shoulder, the head of yours. Make decisions to guess this outcome. The key to successfully delegating is that we must reward the decision-making our employees are making. This is the key. When they make decisions, give them a thumbs up. Even, and this is the hardest part, even if it's a bad decision. Mm. If they make a bad decision, you say, oh my God, what were you thinking? Here's what you need to do. You're actually reverting back to the, the deciding phase, which will push you down to the doing phase. When they make a bad decision, you have to say, it's too bad we didn't get the outcome that we agreed to, but I'm so proud that you decided what you felt was in the best interest of the company. Get back in there, champ. Do it again. Decide again for us. Good job. And if you can reward even the bad decisions, you've become a true delegator, which then avails you to become a designer, which again is the choreographed dance of the organization where you're coordinating all the resources to get that common outcome you want, which is the vision for the business. And I know that you, you had a, a chart in the book that showed that 80% is the doing, but yes. this is not the old 80-20 rule. So talk to us about how that's different. Yeah, it, it is the Pareto principle. I found as I studying businesses, 80% of what a business does is doing, meaning an activity that yields an end benefit to the customer. The problem is, is when the entrepreneur is the 80% doer. That means it's fully contingent upon the, the entrepreneur's work. We have to work more to produce more, but there's only so much time. So that balance always has to happen, that there's 80% doing and the remaining 20% is spread out over these other things. We as an entrepreneur need to shift ourselves out 
to do that 20% stuff and grow the foundation, the front line of organization to support the 80% of the doing work. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. I want to shift on to the second part of the book where we're declaring the QBR, which is the mm. queen bee role. And I, I love that analogy. So, so take us through that. And then also talk about uh, the sticky note method, which sounds like a really fun but challenging exercise. Yeah. So the queen bee role is the heart of an organization. What I realized is every business that's successful has a sing- singular significant brand promise. The example I've been using recently, and I just found out Seth Godin's using the same one, so I got to come up with a new one. He's a little more senior than me. But the example is FedEx. FedEx, their brand promise is if it absolutely positively needs to be there, we'll make it happen. That's their promise. And every organization, my business, your business, has a significant promise. We have to be clear about that. If we peel the onion back one layer, there is an activity that most supports it. That's the queen bee role. Now, this goes back to beehives and stuff, and I explain in the book. But for now, what is the one activity that supports it? For FedEx, it's the logistics. It's the movement of packages that matters. The day FedEx says, you know what? Let's not worry about logistics. Let's worry about customer service and making customers happy. That's the day FedEx crumbles and is out of business. We have to define in our own businesses our queen bee role, I mean, our, our brand promise, and define the role or activity behind it that supports it. You can use this sticky note method. And what it is, is once you know what your brand promise is, Define the different activities in your business, yourself as the owner, that you're doing that supports that brand promise. I suggest starting with the six most important things you do, but you could do more. Then, one at a time, peel off those those sticky notes and say, if I no longer did one of these things and only the remaining ones, which one would I take off? Peel that one away. (laughs) Now you're looking at five. Peel another one away. It's deductive reasoning. And what I want to get down is to the one singular thing that we've defined as the most important. I realize the other things are important, but there's one thing that is the most important. That is the heart of organization. Every effort needs to be made to elevate it and strengthen it, and every effort needs to be made to protect it. So I want to talk a little bit more about protecting and serving that Queen Bee role. Uh, In the book, you you shared a really profound hospital story, which which if you want to recap that, that would be amazing. But what I'm curious about and want you to speak to is that Protecting and serving the queen bee role. Talk about that if you're a solopreneur, solopreneur versus if you're in an organization. Yeah. So the idea of protecting and serving is that you educate all of your team, your employees, your contractors, vendors, that if this isn't happening, our organization's suffering. The example is uh, I studied a couple of hospitals. I did a comparative of two with radically, sadly, very different outcomes. Uh, I just recently was up in Cape Cod. I studied their hospital just actually last week. What's interesting is... They've positioned that organization to be extremely efficient. It's one of the most efficient hospitals in the world. You can go onto Cape Cod's medical system and see what their wait terms times are in waiting rooms, and you'll be 
blown away how efficient they are. Because they've identified the most important thing in that hospital is, is appropriate immediate care. That's been defined. Who serves it? Their doctors. Who's protected? Their doctors. All the other employees there are defending that. So the doctors aren't running insurance claims and, and uh, doing unnecessary administrative work. It's protected and defended. Other hospitals, sadly, they have doctors doing all these different things and they aren't doing the core competency. So the, the whole hospital becomes efficient because the heart of the business is compromised. If you're a solopreneur, you are surely doing whatever the heart of the business is, but there's always other distracting activities you're doing. You have to do the other activities. I get it. You have to be realized that you can never do it to the compromise of that core activity. If you are, you're compromising your entire organization. Then the people who surround you, even if you don't have employees, maybe you have virtual assistants, maybe you have vendors and so forth, have them be the ones that help protect you. Have the vendors of yours start taking off that other innocuous work that's distracting you from your core competency. You have to keep peeling away that other work and protect the heart of your organization. Now, I love the way that you phrased that. And I want to transition because <clears throat> once we've identified, we've got our four Ds down, we know what the the queen bee role is, and we're protecting that role vigorously like that hospital you mentioned in Cape Cod. Talk to us about capturing systems. And and you in particular have a model in the book that you refer to as the ACDC model, which I loved. Talk to us about why that's important and how to implement that. Yeah. So it's interesting. One conundrum I ran into my own business was the development of SOPs, standard operating procedures. And I would notice I'd write an SOP give it to an employee, by the time they were using it, the actual process changed because we use online systems and they update their software and my SOPs are relevant. I also realized a lot of our SOPs sat on shelves for months or years and never got executed on. So I needed a much more dynamic way to transfer tasks and capabilities to other people and they in turn to transfer to others. What we started using, and I noticed the most successful companies use this, is a capture method. As you do the activity, capture it record, you know, you can use screen recording software if it's on a computer. You can use video or audio if it's a physical movement or conversation. Capture it, transfer the recording. So the work's actually still getting done, transfer it. Then the person who's on the receiving end has to replicate the process and then make the next recording because ultimately the teacher is the best student. The ACDC model, nothing to do with the band, but ACDC is about as awesome as Terminator 2. I guess. <laughs> But ACDC um, is the flow I discovered all businesses go through. Not necessarily in the ACDC sequence, but every business touches on this element. A stands for attracting prospects. We have to attract prospects to our business. C is convert them to customers. D is deliver on our promises to those customers. And the last C is collect the money that's due to us. Every element has to be taken care of. At some point at in any business on any given day, one of those points is the one that's the slowest. The entire business will only perform as the slowest functioning component. So look at your ACDC flow through your business and ask yourself, out of all of those, which one is the weakest right now or crippled the most? Once you strengthen that one, the entire business now elevates to the next weak spot. Sadly, most businesses are trying to fix everything and gets frustrated because nothing seems to be getting better. Identify your weakness in the ACDC, strengthen only that, and your entire business will elevate. So to somebody listening to this who you know, has heard for many years that you, you have to create this massive employee handbook with flowcharts and all of these right. things, this, this sounds like you're throwing that out the window completely. Gone, yeah. 
I, I love that. A very, very different. So there's certainly probably pushback to that. And we are going to talk about pushback because I know that's also important in your book. But so I want to keep moving us through in, in the interest of time is that we've captured these systems that work for us. We've, we've gone through that ACDC model, not the band. Awesome. Yes. But, but now how do we take the resources we have internally? Let's say our business has grown and maybe, you know, and even if, even if we're still using the, the virtual assistants you mentioned or, or contractors or vendors, how do we balance all of this to align our teams optimally? I found that most businesses were trying to match traits to titles. I have an organizational chart. I need a receptionist. Who has, you know, who is a good receptionist? And I'd pick a trait but the receptionist has many tasks they have to do, answer the phone to deep data entry and so forth. They would match up to one thing. Maybe they're good on the phone, but they were not necessarily good at things, other things. And we get frustrated with that employee. Maybe say they're not a good receptionist. What I found is to balance our team is we need to match traits, not with titles, but with tasks. Someone who's a great greeter, for example, may be great at doing reception phone work and may also be a great entry-level salesperson or the initial salesperson, but maybe isn't the closer and maybe isn't good at data entry. So we want people that are task-oriented and not title-oriented. And so instead of having this traditional organizational pyramid, we want a web of matching tasks to traits and have people that are title agnostic. So that's what we've done in our own organization. We have a person who is wonderful on the phone just the most warm personality in the world and very genuine. She has become our best sales introductory person. She's not a closer, so she doesn't do the closing components, but she gets people very excited about the business. And then she will transfer that person over to a client to take the order. I mean, to another salesperson to take the order. By doing that, our entire business again has elevated because we've matched people up to their tasks, to, to the traits, to the tasks, not to the titles. No, I love that. And, and, and I want to shift to your, your chapter on knowing who you serve. And you refer to this throughout this chapter as the commitment. Yes. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So Dr. Richard, as I was studying this uh, and people hear about this, they say, this sounds kind of bass backwards. You're saying, talk about who we're delivering to in step six. Like you do all this stuff and then you tell me who's this going to benefit? Shouldn't the who come first? Shouldn't the client come first? And I've discovered the most efficient and successful companies, what they really do is master themselves first. Kind of like yourself. You know, what is my natural strengths and talents? Let me find the job that qualifies for. If I can run really fast and catch a ball on the fly, maybe I'm not a good tennis player because I'm a catcher, but maybe I'm good at football and should be a wide receiver. So what we have to do is be, cl- be clear on what our capabilities are and then match it to the best you know, community that will benefit from it. So in this phase, once we understand our strengths, capabilities, our efficiencies, and you're serving a customer base already, now I want to hone in on who are the customers that will most benefit from it and Uber cater to them. This is where we elevate our match, our offering to match the customer's needs and start concentrating it there. Those are the people who are going to resonate with it, consume the most, pay us a premium, and that's going to facilitate the growth side of our business. Makes perfect sense. And then I want to move us towards the last step, keeping an eye on your business. So talk to us about the best way to do this. Yeah. So this is the, uh, the final stage where we want to extract ourselves from our business. Many people believe that our relationship to a business is parent-child. I'm the parent of a business. My business is the child. I gave it life. I've nurtured it. 
I, I'm growing it and one day it'll have its own legs and it'll pay back to me. The reality is not that, in my opinion. I don't believe we have a parent-child relationship with our business. I believe most entrepreneurs in our business are conjoined twins. <laughs> I believe we share vital organs. We share legs, everything. So as the business goes, so do I. And as I go, so does the business. Therefore, the extraction is very surgical and these steps will get us through it. We have to separate the organs. We have to give the business its own legs and so forth. The final stage is where we have now extracted ourselves from the business. We are not serving the queen bee role. Other people and other things are serving it. The business can survive without us. That's the goal. But at this phase, now we serve the most important role and it's looking at the number, at the numbers and managing the business remotely. You know, seeing the forest from outside, not inside the woods itself. There's actually a statue dedicated to this. This is how important it is. It's the most famous statue or one of the most famous of all time. It's called The Thinker. There's this naked guy with his chin on his fist just spending time pondering the outcomes, you know, the consequences of actions and so forth. As a business owner, we need to become a thinker. You don't have to get naked, but you have to be a thinker. We need to look at the numbers and how the business is operating and just put time into the thinking. So when we do that, we can now facilitate the orchestration of all the different elements and move us toward a common goal, the vision of the business. And very quickly before we wrap, because I know we're at time, talk to us about when you're implementing this change, people invariably don't like change. Most people become uncomfortable with change and there's often pushback. Talk to us about some of the best methods to deal with pushback when you're turning your business into one that runs like clockwork. Yeah. So the, the first one you're going to get is from yourself. Actually, this is the most insidious because it's unconscious or subconscious. Uh, I experienced it myself. I started removing myself from the business. Uh, I did a test. I went to Australia for almost two weeks, uh, disconnected from my business, both virtually and digitally, but for about seven days until I couldn't take anymore and just wanted to check in for one time, see how things were going. There wasn't a single email to me, not a single thing about the business. And my ego collapsed. I said, this is, this is not right. I need to be needed. And I reinserted my business, myself in the business and started to unwind all the progress we made. My employees, my colleagues were running the business. There's only 10 of us. They were running it without me successfully. And yet I reinserted my business. So the first thing is an ego check. And the way to overcome that is to redirect our ego. Do we want a business that needs to survive on us? Or do we truly want a business that can thrive without us and be serving a much greater, more important role, the thinker. If we can redirect our ego to being uh, someone that thinks as opposed to someone that always does, that's how you overcome it. The other thing I noticed in the pushback is the employees themselves. They're like, you're going to leave? You're going to sit and just go on vacation all the time while I run this? That is a defeatist mentality. We actually need to put them in an empowerment mentality. We need to say, for our company to elevate, you need to elevate. And the more you serve the company, of course, the more you're going to be rewarded. The test is, can you guys do this without me? So we need to put them in a position of elevation, not in a position of defeat. Uh, last thing is partners. If you have business partners, this can be very challenging. My partner and I went through some really, you know, some serious conflict around this. And, in, and he was like, we need more of you, Mike. You got to be in the business more. How bad do you want it? How hard is it going to be your grind and hustle? And the sad thing is, this is the mentality we're taking on now. I said, Ron, I want to be out of the business. I want no dependency on me because I want to be doing what I am best at. And if I can do what I'm best at, which is thinking, designing strategy, I can have actually the greatest impact in our business. He didn't believe it and there was conflict and we fought. So what we did agree to was simple tests, small extractions of me. Ron now has become the biggest advocate for getting me the hell out of here because he's seen how the business elevates. 
So you have to walk through some of the stuff in very deliberate baby steps to extract yourself out. Makes perfect sense. Like I have loved this episode and I'm sure everybody listening to this will as well. It's time to wrap up. And as you know, I end my show by asking everybody a single question. And that is, what is your biggest helping? The single most important piece of information that you want somebody to walk away with after hearing our conversation today. Yeah. So the the big one is a four-week vacation. It's audacious, uh, but I challenge everyone listening in today to schedule a four-week consecutive vacation, not tomorrow, not next month, but maybe a year and a half to two years out. That's the limit. Why? If you have a full physical and a full digital disconnect for four consecutive weeks, that's the ultimate test for a business that can run itself. If you declare and truly commit to it, make your family go with you, uh, you know, or whatever you plan to do, if you declare it, it will force a mind shift. Today, you can no longer focus on urgent things and putting out fires and getting through yet just one more day. Today, you start focusing on the important things so your business can get by without you. So declare that four-week vacation be courageous, and you'll feel a mind shift happen immediately. Wow. Awesome. <laughs> and I can't wait to hear the, the feedback on social media from people who have tried <laughs> this guy's crazy. These, these four-week vacations. Mike, where can people find you? Yeah. So I have a whole operation vacation going on. Uh, it's at clockwork.life. So if you go to clockwork.life, that's life. I have all these resources up there. I have a way that you can contact me and actually make your declaration for your operation vacation uh, and all those things all for free at clockwork.life. I love it. Fantastic. Oh, Mike, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was an amazing episode. Oh, Dr. Richard, you are awesome. It was a joy. Thank you. And I want to thank each and every one of you who tuned into this episode. If you like what you heard, go subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the podcast. But most importantly, go out there today and do something nice for someone else, even if you don't know who they are, and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag MyDailyHelping because the happiest people are those that help others.